through our study in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 21. Normally it would be in chapter 16, but I thought, you know what, it's Palm Sunday, let's jump ahead to Matthew 21, then when we get to Matthew 21, we'll kind of skip over the first 11 verses uh, when we get to it. But um, Matthew 21, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I was sharing with Bruce, 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 man, I'm having a hard time talking today. Bruce, uh, first service, I said, well, you know, we're just going to, we'll jump, you know, to, Ma- to Matthew 21 and just be a, a, a little while. He goes, no, it'll probably be in the fall for taking to Matthew 21. Oh, no. Yeah, it just takes longer. Like, we're taking a while to get to it. All right, Matthew 21, starting in verse 1, we read, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Tyler, my message this morning is the coming king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a church. Lord, we do pray for Natalie and Joey and uh, and Aubrey and and, uh, Finley, Lord, as they get ready to uh, be born, Lord, that you would just bless that, keep Natalie's health strong and healthy and And, Lord, keep those babies safe and strong and healthy as well, Lord God. Thank you for the gift of children. Lord, thank you for your word and the promises found in your word that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you're there when we go through times of testings and trials and struggles, Lord. You're there all along, Lord. And you're there to give us the strength and and the ability to, to, to go through it, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this opportunity to study it this morning. We pray, Lord, that we'd have open ears to receive all that you have for us, that we would find not only information, Lord, but application in our lives that we might draw closer to you. And finally, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? We ask you that you'd bless our time together. We give it to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Story I've shared before, but I like it. It's a group of four-year-olds who were in Sunday school, and the teacher asked them this question on Palm Sunday. Can anybody tell me what today is? Well, one little girl raised her hand up and said, and said, uh, today is Palm Sunday. And the teacher said, what is the significance of that? Well, the little girl said that Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus got on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem, and they laid palm branches at his feet, and the people cried out, Hosanna. Now, this is pretty good for a four-year-old. The teacher said that it's, that it's very good. She said, could anyone tell me what next Sunday is? Same little girl raised up her hand and said, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And she went on to explain the significance of that as well. That, that is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, 
Well, before the, the teacher could congratulate her, the little girl went on to say, but if he sees his shadow, he's got to go back in for seven weeks. <laughs> I love that this story. You know, today we celebrate Palm Sunday. I find it interesting that we don't celebrate feeding the 5,000 Friday, you know, or uh, water turned into wine Wednesday or something like that. I would imagine we'd have a, quite a turnout if we did, but... I suppose you could call it spread your clothes on the road Sunday because they did do that. But we call it Palm Sunday. We also call it the triumphal entry. I like to call it the triumphal exit because that's what Jesus was about to do. He was entering Jerusalem to exit this earth via the cross. He would be back three days later, risen from the dead. But this again was the beginning of his triumphal exit. Now it's called Palm Sunday because we read in verse 8 that they cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In John's Gospel, we read of the crowd waving palm branches as they see Jesus. Now, where did this come from? Why are they waving the palm branches? Well, earlier in their nation's history, the Jews had waved palm branches when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppression. Now, this was pretty radical. It was during the, the reign of a bloodthirsty Syrian a king named Antiochus Epiphany, a man so blasphemous that he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies and made the priest drink its blood. I mean, uh, Epiphanes bludgeoned the Jews into submission. After years of this going on, however, a man named Judas Maccabee, which last name means, is that not last name means hammer, decided him and his brothers were going to bring the hammer down on this guy Antichus Epiphanes, and they launched a guerrilla warfare against him. And, and Maccabee and his band of renegades miraculously overcame the Assyrian army, drove Epiphanes from Jerusalem. And as a result, the people spontaneously celebrated by waving these palm branches as they paraded down the street. And from that time on, the back of the Jewish coins even depicted a palm branch as a symbol of deliverance from oppression, a symbol of a victory, a symbol of, of, a, of freedom. You know, maybe like the American flag or maybe a, a stuffed animal, a, a bald eagle or something. A symbol of freedom. And so that's what's going on here. Now, if you're taking notes, I've divided our study into three points. We're going to see, number one, Jesus leading. Number two, Jesus fulfilling. And number three, Jesus delivering. Number one, Jesus leading. Look at verses one through three. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Drop down to verses 6 and 7. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. Now, this is interesting. Jesus says, okay, I need a couple of you disciples. I want to send you out for a task. He says, okay, you you boys, okay, I want you to go into this city where nobody knows you. I want you to untie this colt, or rightly translated, a young donkey. Bring the donkey to me. If anyone asks you about this, just say, the Lord needs it. I mean, that's really putting these disciples to the test. It's putting them in a place of, of being obedient, whether they understand the big picture or not. I mean, think about what Jesus was asking his disciples to do, to walk in faith, to walk in obedience. First, they were to believe that there was going to be a donkey right where Jesus said it would be. Secondly, they would have to go to this unbroken donkey, loose it, and actually lead it back uh, to Jerusalem. And then number three, 
they were to say nothing unless challenged by the owner or anyone else, and then they were only to repeat a phrase uh, not really explaining themselves. It'd be like saying, okay, I need a few guys here this morning to go to this man's garage and open up his garage door, and there you'll find a car inside. You know, pick it up, bring it to me, and if the owner asks you about it, just tell them, tell them the Lord has need of it. I think I'd probably find, uh, not be very easy to find anyone to do that for me. I mean, it'd be tough. You get what the Lord was asking them to do. Now, I think if I were one of these disciples, I would be pretty apprehensive, not knowing what to expect. But they followed the Lord's leading. They didn't question the Lord. They go into town. In fact, in Luke's gospel, the owner actually does come out and ask them what they're doing and, and why you're losing the cult. And they say, well, the Lord has need of them. And that's it. No complaints. You know, no, you can't take my donkey. Nothing. And it worked out exactly as the Lord led them to. You know, I think we've all heard the phrase, where God guides, God provides. Isaiah 58, 11 tells us this, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. As the Lord guides us through His Word, He strengthens us. He strengthens our, our bones. You know, we'll be, be like a watered garden as He leads us. God wants to lead us, each one of us, every step along our journey. Not just with the big decisions that we have to make, but the small ones as, as well. But more than that, He desires to lead us to opportunities to encounter people so that we might point them to Jesus Christ. We might share the good news of Jesus Christ. I read this story, it's kind of a long one, but it's worth it. It's a story about a man who had been to a once-a-night Bible study. And the pastor had shared about listening to God and obeying the Lord's voice as he leads. And the young man couldn't help but wonder, does God still speak to people? Does he still lead people that way? Well, after service, he went out with some of his friends for coffee and pie, and they discussed the message. And, and several different ones talked about how God led them in different ways. And it was about 10 o'clock when the young man started driving home. Sitting in his car, he just began to pray, God, if, if, if you still speak to people, speak to me. I, I will listen. I will do my best to obey. Then as he drove down the main street of his town, he had the strongest thought, stop and buy a gallon of milk. And he shook his head and said out loud, God, is that you? And obviously he didn't get a reply and started on, on home again. But again, he thought, buy a gallon of milk. And then the man thought about young Samuel and, and how he didn't recognize the voice of God and how little Samuel ran to Eli. And, and so he said, okay, God, in case this is you, I'm going to stop and I'm going to buy a gallon of milk. It didn't seem much a, of an obedience. He could always use the milk. So he stopped and he purchased a gallon of milk and started off towards his home. And as he passed 7th Street, again, he felt the urge, turn down that street. This is crazy, he thought, and drove on past the intersection. And again, he felt that he should turn around, so he turned around and started going down, you know, 7th Street, half-jokingly saying out loud, okay, God, I will. Drove several blocks when suddenly he felt like he should stop. Pulled over to the curb and looked around. He was in a semi-commercial area of town. It wasn't the best, but it wasn't the worst of the neighborhoods either. The businesses were closed, and, and most of the houses looked dark like the people were, were already in bed. And, and again, he sensed the Lord saying, go and give the milk to the people in the house across the street. Well, the man looked at the house, and it was dark, and it looked like the people were either gone or they were already asleep. And he started to open the door of his car. Then he sat back down in his car and said, well, this is insane. And those people are asleep, and if I wake them up, they're, they're going to be mad, and I'll look so stupid. And again, he felt like he should go and give the milk. Finally, he opened the car door and said, Okay, God, if this is you, 
I will go to the door and I will give them the milk. And if you want me to look like a crazy person, okay, I will be obedient. I guess this will count for something. But if they don't answer right away, I am out of here. And so he walked across the street, rang the bell. He could hear some noise inside. A man yelled from behind the door, Who is it? What do you want? And the door opened before the young man could get away. And and the man was standing there in his jeans and t-shirt. He looked like he just got out of bed. Had a strange look on his face. And he didn't seem too happy to have some stranger standing at his doorstep. And he said, What is it? Well, the young man thrust a gallon of milk into his hands. Here, I, I, I brought this to you. Well, the man grabbed the gallon of milk and rushed down a hallway speaking something in Spanish. And, and then from down the hall came a woman carrying the milk towards the kitchen. The man was following her, holding a baby. The baby was crying. The man had tears streaming down from his face. The man began speaking and half crying. Well, we were just praying and we had some really big bills this month and we ran out of money. We didn't have any milk for our baby. And I was just praying and asking God to show me how to get some milk. And his wife yelled out from the kitchen. Uh, and I asked him to send an angel with some. Are you an angel? The young man reached into his wallet, pulled out all the money he had on him and put the man's hand in, put in the man's hand. He turned and walked back towards his car and the tears were streaming down his face. He knew that God still answers prayer and that God still leads his people. Great story. I, I loved it. And I started thinking that the Lord still does the same thing, same thing today for you and me in our lives. You've been, maybe you've been thinking about someone. And you haven't seen them in church for a while. And, and you kind of go and wonder how they're doing. And, and God really puts this burden inside your heart. And you find yourself praying for them. And thinking about them. And the one afternoon as you're thinking about them, you're also thinking about maybe some Andy's frozen custard. Because that happens a lot in my life. It does. I don't know. And then, then what ends up happening as you pull up into Andy's, the next thing you know, there they are. They're sitting at Andy's. Same story. How did that happen? Well, partly because you sat in Andy's for six months waiting for it to happen. But, but, but I'm convinced that it's God. God who puts the burden in our hearts to, to, to meet someone. And, and then he orchestrates the time. He orchestrates the scenario. He orchestrates all this happening. You know, maybe it's, 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 it's not Andy's. Maybe it's a grocery store. Maybe it's, it's a mall, wherever. But here's the point. God used a very natural means to accomplish a very supernatural event. And he still leads us that way if we're in tune to his spirit, if we're in tune to his word. So the Lord leads his disciples to go into town and get this donkey. They do. They bring them back. This gets us to point number two, Jesus fulfilling. Look at verse four. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Three prophecies are being fulfilled right here. And, and, and also, within these three prophecies, we see uh, the prophecies fulfilled for his second coming. These are, are his first coming. First one that, that we see here, Matthew mentions, is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now notice that Matthew's gospel says, tell the daughter of Zion, in verse 5, but the prophecy in Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And also note, Matthew leaves out he is just and having salvation uh, 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 that, that Zechariah puts in there. See, Matthew only quoted part of, of Zechariah 9.9. He left out certain things and included others. Why is that? Well, because Matthew's prophecy had to do with his first coming. The first coming of Jesus Christ. The first part of the verse in Zechariah has to do with the second coming of Christ. 
Jesus came in riding on the, a, a, an animal of peace and came bringing peace at his first coming. He's going to come back riding on a white horse, an animal of warfare at his second coming. And really the world has had almost 2,000 years to decide what it's going to do with Jesus Christ and he's pretty much he is rejected in our day. So God is going to make it very clear that the Son is coming back to reign. He came the first time to die for our redemption, but the next time he's going to come to rule and to reign. Next prophecy. Jesus fulfilled Genesis 49.10. Listen to Genesis 49.10. This is Jacob's prophecy to his son Judah concerning the Messiah. He says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law given from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, who is this talking about? Well, none other, none other than Jesus, who came riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, offering himself as the Messiah, the King and the Savior. We read here that he washed his garments in wine. Well, what kind of wine? Well, blood, his own blood. But when Christ comes a second time, his garments will be red, and the question will be asked in Isaiah 63, 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? But this time it will not be because of his blood, it will be the blood of his enemies. This predicts Christ's second coming when he returns in judgment. And then, thirdly, this event is prophesied back in Daniel chapter 9. Jesus fulfilled Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Listen to Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now we know for a fact, that on March 14, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2 to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. At that point, the stopwatch began. We also know when it says that there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks that we just read, it's literally a description for years. There will be seven seven-year periods and 62 seven-year periods before the Messiah would come. So this is a prophecy of the Messiah coming. In other words, there will be 483 years from the time King Artaxerxes gives the command to Nehemiah to restore and build Jerusalem till the Messiah would come. 483 years later makes it April 6, 32 A.D. when this prophecy was fulfilled to the T. Interestingly as well, Daniel prophesied what would happen at the end of those 483 years where he says Messiah would be cut off but not for himself. And we know at the end of the week, Jesus was cut off, but it wasn't for himself. He was crucified for the sins of the world. Now, for those of you prophecy buffs, we also know that there's one seven-year period left to be fulfilled. It's when God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world in what's called the Great Tribulation Period. That'll be the completion of what's commonly called the 70 weeks of Daniel. But you see, for Jesus to fulfill just three of those prophecies for his first coming, the odds are astronomical. And yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 for his first coming. 
Let me give you just a few. You can jot them down. You can look them up later. Messiah, the first one is Genesis 3.15, that Messiah would bruise Satan's head. Well, Jesus destroyed the devil, Hebrews 2.14. Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, Luke 3.23-33. Messiah would be God himself, Isaiah 9.6. Jesus was God with us, Matthew 1.23. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2.1. Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. Jesus was born of a virgin, Matthew 1.18. Go on and on and on. The authenticity and the preciseness of God's word is amazing. And all these and more of his first coming and hundreds more of his second coming. You know, the longer I spend in God's word and going through it, I'm amazed at the accuracy. I'm amazed at the reliability of it. It's absolutely astonishing. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this. God says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. See, God's word is more reliable than any man-made philosophy or opinion. Someone will come up to me and say, Well, my opinion about God and my opinion about Jesus is, I I want to say stop. I, I don't care. What your opinion is about God and, and about Jesus. All I care is what the Bible says. Why? Because God's word tells me in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. See, when it comes to your opinion about God, and for that matter, my opinion about God, it really doesn't mean anything. It's the word of God that reveals God to us and reveals Jesus to us with pinpoint accuracy, and that's Definitely more reliable than anybody's opinion. It reveals what's right and what's wrong, what sin is and what it's not. So when the world says, well, you know, I think that drunkenness is okay, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you think. God calls it sin. When the world says, well, I think abortion is okay, it doesn't matter what you think. God's word calls it sin. In fact, Paul warns us in Colossians 2.8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Don't look to the world for what's right and what's wrong. Look to the Lord. Look to His Word. He's the final authority. He alone declares the beginning from the end. Now this brings us to our third and final point, Jesus delivering. Look at verses 4-8 through eight again. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, for Jesus to do this, riding this donkey on into Jerusalem was a, a definite attention getter. I mean, here's something interesting I found about donkeys. Donkeys' average lifespan is between 25 to 40 years old. Sometimes if you take real good care of your donkey, they can live up to 60 years of age, in case you were wondering. George Washington owned the first donkeys in America, and he became a donkey breeder. Donkeys, as you know, have long ears for two reasons. It enables them to hear miles away, and interesting enough, it keeps them cool, like a radiator that helps them keep their body cool. And then number four, donkeys love to roll in the dirt. Like they love that more than anything else. That's why when you touch them, clouds of dirt, you know, come off of them and dust. Something more about donkeys. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a, or participated in a donkey basketball game. 
the donkey just stands there. They don't want to move. You know, you have to get off it. You got to push them. I mean, isn't all that just a perfect picture of us before coming to Christ? A stubborn, strong-willed people who like to roll around in the dirt of sin. Here's another interesting fact about donkeys. Do you know that according to Exodus 13.13, that before donkey could be released and used by their master, they had to be redeemed. Now, this all had to do with the Jews leaving Egypt and, and sparing the firstborn son. But, but listen to Exodus 13.13. 13. It says this, But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So whenever a firstborn donkey was born, a lamb had to die so the donkey could live. And I'm sure that lambs are going, that's a bad deal. I, I don't like that. But if you see, if there's no sacrifice, then the donkey would be put to death. It, its neck would be broken. Now what's interesting to me is that in that very same verse in Exodus 13, 13, it speaks of the firstborn of man being redeemed. What a great picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to die for us dumb donkeys, us strong-willed donkeys, us stubborn as donkeys. Our Jesus came as the Lamb of God and came to redeem us so that we would not have to have our necks broken. He redeemed us and delivered us from His wrath to come and delivered us from the, the, the chains of sin and death. Now that's not a bad deal at all if you ask me. But in that culture, to ride a donkey, come in, it's, it's a symbol of, of a hero. So for Rome, when Jesus came on uh, in on this donkey, they're saying, look, this guy's acting as though he's returning from, from war as a hero. What's going on here? Now the Jews, you know, they saw a different significance. For the Jews, he was, you know, Jesus was saying, I'm your Messiah. But they wanted him to be the king right then and there and overthrow the Roman oppression. They wanted another Judas Maccabee to come and deliver them. They wanted to crown him as king. And so they're taking their coats and laying them in front of Jesus, throwing down the palm branches. Imagine that scene for a moment. Imagine, you know, if we decided to do that. Let's go outside. Let's go in the, in the mud and the grass and the, and the rain and the snow that's there. And let, let, let's take off our, our, our jackets and let's put them down in there. I mean, it would be horrible. What an expensive and radical gesture this was, just showing honor to the Lord. I mean, the rocky and the muddy streets of Jerusalem were not pretty either. I doubt the dirt would have even washed out after tunics got, you know, the, the hoof prints on them and, and the mud embedded on them. I mean, what a, a small gesture this was of just, just sharing a gift, a token of gesture of honoring a person with this, you know, the green carpet treatment. You heard of the red carpet treatment. This is the green carpet treatment. And then there are words. Verse 9 says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Just worshiping the Lord. But, but the word Hosanna literally means save now. Now, probably the, the best Translation of this would be, help us, help us, we are tired of living under the control of the Roman Empire, help us now. wasn't so much of a personal prayer as to save me, but it was kind of a corporate prayer, cry for the nation, save our time of distress, the, the king is here, he's going to overthrow the Roman oppression. Now Jesus had never done anything like this before, usually, uh, you know, he withdrew from the crowds when they clamored for him. Once he even uh, hid himself from a crowd that wanted to make him king. But now he deliberately arranges all the events to come in and enter Jerusalem uh, just in a way that would draw attention to himself. Now we understand time and time again Jesus kept saying, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. Here his hour has come. 
And he does fulfill not only Zechariah 9, 9, but Malachi 3, 1, where it says there, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And on this day, the Lord would leave no doubt at all that he came as a Messiah. Jesus knew he was a wanted man. He knew coming into, to, into town what would happen. He knew that he, what would be the result of publicizing his arrival. In fact, the religious authorities had commanded anyone aware of his location, according to John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 57, that they were to reveal his location. But you see, Jesus wasn't coming forth as a helpless victim, unaware of what lies ahead. He came forth as a powerful victor, bravely marching in to battle, bravely coming to the cross. And as he entered, masses of people were shouting in verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Great joy of people just worshiping the king. Yet we also know that great sadness would fill that day. Because the same cries of Hosanna came from ignorance of what Jesus came to do. Ignorance of God's word. People wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted to deliver who would conform to their plans instead of to his. Again, they wanted Jesus to destroy Rome but leave untouched their, their cherished sins and their, their superficial religion. Again, more than 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, not much has changed. People, they, 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 want, they want to celebrate Palm Sunday, but they neglect Jesus the rest of the year. They want to celebrate his birth, but, but you know, they live as though he never came. They celebrate the resurrection of Easter, but live as if he were dead. And many sing praises of Jesus and we think will, will give us wealth and health and success and happiness. But how our praises stop when obedience and commitment is required. We want the appearance of being religious as long as it doesn't require anything from me. That's what these people were doing. They wanted to see Jesus as king, but they wanted him on their own terms. Lord, we want you, but we want you to be our conquering king. They wanted a military messiah that would accomplish their agenda. But again, Jesus was coming as a suffering Savior to accomplish God's agenda. He wasn't coming to take a crown, but to wear a crown of thorns. And Jesus did not come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin and death. He did not come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace between God and man. They misunderstood his mission. I like this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He said, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. In the same way, there are people today, yeah, they, they want Jesus in, in their life as long as he does what they want him to do. Oh yeah, you can preach a sermon on success or how to make their marriage a little bit stronger or their teeth a little bit whiter or anything like that, but you know, like Christianity is some self-help philosophy. But when you talk about Jesus and, and uh, about Jesus that demands obedience, a Jesus that requires repentance and change in one's life after they've really encountered him, well, they're not so excited about that. And we see it today. People who say they love God, but it's a God they've created on their own terms. Essentially, they say, look, God, you can come into my life, but don't tell me what to do. And I won't tell you what to do. Don't tell me who my girlfriend or boyfriend should be. Don't tell me who I should marry or not marry. Don't interfere with my business. Don't tell me what I can or cannot put in my body. I'm, I'm going to do it my way. But by the way, Lord, I could use your help in this one situation. It doesn't work that way. Who are you to stand and dictate terms to God Almighty? To say, God, this is how it's going to work. You can work here, but I don't want you to work there. And you can come here, but you're out of here. I mean, really? I mean, do people really think that they're in a position to dictate to God what He can or cannot do in their lives? Listen to what the, God's Word says in Lamentations 3.22. 
Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fell not. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, it's only through God's great love and mercy that God hasn't judged uh, people for their sin right now. We, have, we all deserve, deserve judgment. We all deserve death. Yet he's so loving and compassionate, he chose to die for sins and deliver us from death and deliver us from judgment. That's what riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was all about. But you know, another side note, there really wasn't anyone at this first Palm Sunday that really knew what was going on. How do we know this? Well, from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16, we read, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him and that they'd done these things to Him. I'm sure they said that about, that about a lot of things after this. See, John's writing many years later, and he admits that he didn't really understand what Jesus was doing that day. He probably asked James and Peter and Andrew, and they all didn't understand either, but they pretended like they did. But now they understand. Now they, they go, man, now I understand. God, Jesus showed us so many things. Finally, look at verse 10 and 11. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. See what they thought of Jesus? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Not the Son of God, come down from heaven to redeem mankind. Not the Messiah. They totally missed who they were worshiping. All wrapped up in themselves. Wrapped up in their own needs, their wants, their situations. And again, sadly, I believe there's thousands of people today who attend a worship service on a regular basis. And they feel they're meeting with God, yet they're doing so on their terms, and they don't even know the one and who they're worshiping. That's why when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all this city was moved, saying, Who is this? They're so caught up in the emotion of the day. They're caught up in the parade and, and, and the event. They were all following this crowd, but they didn't even know what the parade was for. And they didn't even know who they were worshiping. Just that someone had shown up and someone might be able to save them, them from the despair that they find themselves in under the Roman Empire. They really didn't care what his name was. All they knew is that they needed help. And he would give help to them, but not the hope that they were looking for. See, Jesus didn't come so that people would kind of stay at arm's length from us. He came so we could know who he truly is. He came so that we would know who it is that we should worship. I think it's a relevant question to ask yourself today before we close this morning. Who do we worship? And when we gather today, this morning, to worship the King, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we do, when our hearts and our motives are right, it's real worship. And God meets us here and we experience the Lord because the word says he inhabits the praises of his people. You see, we need to be able to say, I know the one in whom I worship. I'm not, I'm not just following the shouts of the crowd. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But to know the one in whom we worship. So many people in the world today that have the heart to worship someone, they have a desire to have that emptiness inside of them filled, but they don't care anymore if it's a higher power or some force or some presence out there. But you see, God desires for it to become so much more than that. Desires that personal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, I was kind of like that growing up. My life personally, many of you know my testimony. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I was baptized. I did my first confession, my first communion, my confirmation. I was an altar boy, married in the Catholic Church. Knew all the right things to say, all the right things to do. But yet I also knew I was missing something. I knew that there was more. I knew that I was hungry for God. 
Like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I too was all caught up in the religion of the day as opposed to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And while driving in my car one morning, listening to a Bible study on the radio by Pastor Chuck Smith, he came to a point at the end of his study where he said, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never prayed to ask Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior, what's holding you up? Why, why are you waiting? You need to do it. And I, I pulled over and I did it right then and there. And I knew from that moment on that there's a difference between religion and relationship. I knew what Jesus came to truly do. He came to die for my sins because no amount of good works, no amount of going to church can save me from my sins. Jesus took me from a place of just kind of following along with the crowd and shouting, somebody help me, as opposed to somebody knowing, truly knowing the one that died for me and rose again from the dead. Jesus wants that personal relationship with each and every one of us. And we need to be able to say this morning that we know personally the one in whom we are worshiping. Let me show you the difference, the difference between kind of being religious and actually knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. John chapter 5, Jesus will add some portions of Scripture, some verses that are very challenging to us. Jesus says this, Jesus is speaking, John 5, 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's how it becomes personal. It becomes personal when, when you get way beyond this religious factor, when you say today that, that, that I have done what verse 24 has asked me to do. I've heard the words of the Lord. I believe in Him who has sent Jesus, that He has the keys to everlasting life. And those who put their faith in, and believe in Him, verse 24 continues to say, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. See, Jesus is the only one that can give us what God has entrusted His Son to bring, forgiveness of sin, the promise of life everlasting, to pass from death to life. You cannot find that in any other name. You need to know Him. You need to continue to know Him in a personal way. In fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 38 of that same chapter, John 5, 38. But you do not have His Word abiding in you because, you, because whom He sent Him you do not believe. See, that's the difference between being religious and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. One more, he goes on to verse 39 and says this, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Is that you? I hope not this morning. Are you willing to come to Jesus this morning so you may have life? Have you made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to Him? See, especially in the times in which we live, it's not enough for us right now to think that we're okay simply because we're, we're going along with the crowd. Notice Jesus was riding on that donkey that day. The crowds were all shouting and all. I don't think he was very impressed by the size of the crowd. Again, the crowd didn't even know who he was. Listen, you can't be content with just going along with the crowd. Don't think that there's safety in numbers because the Bible says that the safe broad road that everybody's on, that's leading to destruction. The crowd is heading for hell. And that so much breaks the heart of God that He would send His Son, Jesus, that we could know Him. Listen, Jesus knew He was coming to that city to pay the ultimate price for us since He knew that it led to the cross. He knew that those shots of Hosanna saved now would soon be switched to crucify Him. We have no king but Caesar. Yet that, that, that would not stop Him from His mission or His goal. To die for, for our sins so we can have that relationship with Him with our Heavenly Father. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never made that commitment to Jesus Christ and you've just kind of been going along with the crowd and you don't have a personal relationship with Him, it's time to stop. It's time to pull away and say, no, I want to know you personally. I want to live for you. 
I want to know that I have eternal life. If that's your decision this morning, I want to pray with you and give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your son is coming back, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming back on a white horse. And judgment is going to come, Lord. And we who know you, Lord, we are saved from this wrath that is to come. But right now, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to fully, really, truly know you as Lord and Savior, as Messiah, Lord, that they would make the decision this morning, that they would make uh, that step of faith and say, Lord, I want to know you completely. I want to have this relationship with you. I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again. Lord, I want to know if you were to come back today for your church that I would go to heaven with them. If that's your desire, when our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. Making a commitment to Jesus Christ to be born again today. Anybody at all? I want to be saved today. I want to be born again. If that's your desire, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. God loves you so much. Tell the Son to die for you. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, that that we know you as our King of kings and Lord of lords. And in these last days, Lord, help us to live for you. Lord, help us to look for those divine opportunities that we might share the love of Christ with those around us. And Lord, we thank you for opening up our eyes to see that you are our King of kings, our Lord of lords. All glory be to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand